Hi, Nancy. Hi, Shane. When I say extinction, what do you think of? Dinosaurs. <laughs> what does that even think of? Is that you? I I would be I would be shocked if someone had a different response to that question. No, that's what I think of. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and all okay. In all fairness, uh, so that's definitely part of it. But there's more to meets the eye, or I guess in this case the ear, when it comes to extinctions. And so we're actually going to dig into that for our next series. So over the next six weeks, stay tuned for. You know, more of the, let's say, classic extinction stories like The End of the Dinosaurs. But spoiler, there's more to the story than just the asteroid. We're going to talk about the late Triassic, which led to said dinosaurs. And the Cambrian Explosion, which is frankly kind of the opposite of an extinction. That's interesting. Okay. Seems like you're getting off track. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay. I'm still on track. And, but this might seem, we might go a little far afield in this one. We're also going to dive into volcanoes. We're going to explore some extinct comets. And to end on it, we're going to talk about the end of the space station. And so we're going to have a little bit of preview of that coming up. But before we go, I just wanted to let everyone know that this is actually going to be Nancy's last oh. episode with us. She's, uh, she's leaving AGU for new opportunities. And while this might be fitting since this is a preview for a series essentially about endings. I do want to thank you, Nancy, for all the fun we've had over the years. This has been this has been really fun. It's been super it's fun. It's been really it's great. It's been really fun. It, it, wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been the same uh, building this without you. Uh, so thank you for being here with all of us. And luckily, I look forward to seeing you around the neighborhood. Yeah, we'll still hopefully be in touch. <laughs> we won't have to like talk into microphones when we when we speak see each other. Exactly. We'll do, we'll do it uh, kind of more naturally. So uh, thank you, Nancy. And everyone stay tuned for a preview of things to come. Science is fascinating, but don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Boppy. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. I'm David Moscato. And I'm Will Harris. And we are both paleontologists. We both got our master's in paleontology at East Tennessee State University together-ish, mm -hmm. several years ago. We have definitive evidence of a major asteroid impact that happened right at the boundary, right at the end of the Cretaceous. And in fact, in many places in the world, that boundary in the geologic record, at right at 66 million years, you can actually see the boundary between the Cretaceous and the Paleogene because there is this layer that is full of, when you look, look very closely and do chemical tests on it, full of meteor, meteorite stuff. One of the biggest miscategorizations of the asteroid impact is that it hit and it was like a missile strike and just killed everything. Right. We often talk about it that way. Yes. We say an asteroid killed the dinosaurs and it sounds like it landed on all their heads mm -hmm. and they all keeled over. Yep. But a mass extinction is caused by ecological disturbance. My name is Danny Della Justina, and I am the deputy principal investigator of NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission. I'm also an assistant professor of planetary science at the University of Arizona. We all have to be trained to shoot a shotgun. 
Um, and so I remember just being so concerned that uh, something was going to happen in the field and I wasn't going to see Bennu. <laughs> and I had been waiting for so many years for for this moment, yeah, when our cameras were going to resolve the asteroid and I was going to be able to see it as a world and not just a point source of light. And, you know, when you're in the field, you're, you're um, doing a lot of pretty manually intensive work. Uh, we're riding in helicopters on a regular basis. And so there's, there's a fair amount of occupational hazards. And I just remember being so like, I have to just get through this field season intact so I can get back home. I know those images are going to be coming down in two months and I need to see Bennu before I die. Did you ever see a polar bear while you were there? No, luckily I have not ever encountered a polar bear and I would really like to keep it that way. Hello, so I'm um, Rachel Wood. I'm based at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland in the UK, and I'm a, the professor of carbonate geoscience. Those animals that we always thought were absolutely Cambrian, we are, they are turning up in the Ediacaran as well. So we're doing two things. We're, we're, we're pulling those animals back into older and older rocks, but we're also connecting the animals in those older rocks to the Cambrian animals. So when you, when you stand back and you get a wider context you can see that there's a bigger picture emerging of you know putting together all these these animals as a series of successive radiations each one was was fairly distinct but if we just focus on the cambrian alone we lose all that context and we lose the the context of understanding the the origins and the harbingers harbingers of what happened in the cambrian so this whole interval of time it's probably only uh, sort of 60, 70 million years or so, so much happens that is fascinating, but it, it doesn't really just happen in the Cambrian. It is the Ediacaran Cambrian radiation that is so dynamic and so fascinating. Hi, I'm Dr. Janine Krepner. I am an associate honorary associate researcher at the University of Waikato here in New Zealand, and I am a volcanologist. So one of the most widespread things that comes out of a volcano is volcanic ash. And something that is a pet peeve of mine, and all my friends know this and people make fun of me for it, is I can't stand it seeing it being called smoke. Especially when people are saying it's spewing smoke, like they're just, ah, hate it. <laughs> but there's an important difference. Like smoke is something that is caused by combustion and it has its own hazards, especially depending on what's burning. But volcanic ash is pulverized rock. So it's got um, glass in it. It's got crystals in it. It's rock. It can be extremely fine. It can be up to two millimeters in diameter, these grains. I destroyed my first pair of glasses I wore in the field because if you get tiny bits of rock on your glasses and then you wipe it off with your shirt, you've just wow. destroyed your lens. So cameras and all of that stuff, if you have ash in your car and you like wipe it off, you are, it's, and you don't want to be in an airplane in a volcanic ash plume either because that can shut down your engines, whereas smoke generally won't do that as far as I'm aware. Hi, I'm Hans Seuss. I'm senior scientist in the Department of Paleobiology at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, and I'm in charge of non-mammalian vertebrate fossils. 
So the Triassic, in a way, is really the time that modern ecosystems and most of the dominant modern groups of animals on land and even in the oceans come into being. And so it's a really interesting period. Strangely, however, it when you sort of do an interest scale for geological periods, the Triassic has gotten much less attention than a lot of other geological periods. And I've heard it described as sandwiched between two major extinction events. In that respect, it's actually unique because it follows the largest extinction that we had in the history of life during the last 600 million years. And it ends with a major extinction of life, both in the oceans and on land, about 200 million years ago. My name is Justin Walsh. I am Associate Professor of Art History and Archaeology at Chapman University in Southern California. My primary research is archaeological. I've worked in the U.S., Spain, Jordan, and Italy on various digs. I have a current excavation in Spain, and I'm also the co-PI of the International Space Station Archaeological Project. So mostly, you're hoping that your research work in the future will be used to help the next space station be that much better than the International Space Station is. Yeah, that's one aspect of it. And I would say that that's a a really critical aspect of it, where we, even as unusual as this project is, another way, an additional way in which it's unusual is that we can have practical outcomes for the future. Not a lot of archaeology projects have that opportunity. But of course, then the other aspect of it, as you were getting towards uh, with a previous question, is the fact that the space station won't be there anymore. It is undeniably a historic site of human activity, and yet we're going to burn up most of it in the atmosphere and send the rest of it to a watery grave. You know, thousands of meters deep. I promised Nancy that our final episode with us wouldn't be doom and gloom, even though it is introducing our extinction series. I think I delivered, and I'm really looking forward to the next six weeks, and I hope you all are too. Special thanks to Colin Warren for audio engineering and our rotating cast of amazing producers, Katrina Jackson, Molly McGid, Devin Reese, and Sarah Whitlock. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please rate and review this podcast, and you can always find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. Is that that what you're asking me? That's what I'm asking you. Why? What if she talks about high stakes? Oh, because she says above that, she says, uh, there are many ways to be a scientist, so focus on your strengths and round yourself out. See, this is... High stakes, high stakes, high stakes, high stakes, high stakes. Well, I can just just throw something out there. I can just throw something out there. I'll throw something out there. Nancy, I'm very happy for you, but I'm going to miss this. (laughs)